I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man ah the old president johnson how are you going to pay for it that's the common refrain when the topic of medicare for all comes up the bernie sanders and now maybe elizabeth warren proposal has been derided as free stuff the idea is laughed off as free ponies for everyone but though uh, our guest as our guest today dave lindorf argues america has become quote virtually a third world country itself in terms of education, healthcare, transportation, infrastructure, environmental protection, worker safety, standard of living, life expectancy, infant mortality, and democratic freedom, we are anything but poor. There's lots of money there, plenty of money. It's just a question of priorities in the budget. Hundreds of billions are being poorly allocated. Is it possible that in our relentless post-war drive for unchallenged military domination of the world, instead we have by our own choices become far weaker in terms of real national security. While the other side insists that a big government program like Medicare for All would just be too much money for taxpayers to spend, our guest today argues that, of course, the money is there. How are you going to pay for it? Well, it's not particularly complicated, really. The U.S. has spent about $6 trillion, I can't even imagine what that number really is, resulting in the deaths of about, oh, half a million people since 9-11, according to a new study by Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. In an article in The Nation titled, Military Spendings Out of Control, While Slashing It Could Easily Fund Medicare for All. Our guest today, author Dave Lindorf, serves kind of as a, a weed whacker, clearing out a path through the overgrown, unkempt field of brush, which has intentionally served to block our vision. Dave Lindorf, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thanks for having me on. I love that image of a weed whacker. <laughs> it took a little doing, but yeah, I try. Nation contributor Dave Lindorf also writes for Salon, London Review of Books, and Counterpunch. He's a founder of ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, author of four books. He was a 1990s Hong Kong China correspondent for Business Week. Boy, we should talk about Hong Kong on a different show. Uh, Dave Lindorf is an American investigative reporter, a columnist for Counterpunch, and a contributor to Business Week, The Nation, Extra, and Salon. His work was highlighted by Project Censored. 2004, 2011, and 2012. Well, again, thanks for being with us and uh, helping us get through the weeds. It seems your article was stimulated by being pleasantly surprised by a recent op-ed in the nation's newspaper of record, The Old Grey Lady, The New York Times. Never known for its radicalism, it was written... Uh, it was a piece written by Lindsay Kashgarian, director of the Institute for Policy Studies National Priorities Project, 
What about that article and being there struck you as unusual, that it was in the Times at all? What is unique and significant about that happening? Well, it was an op-ed piece, and it, uh, you know, the, the Times opinion page, which is billed as a place where uh, views can range freely from those on the editorial page and, and in the news section, is actually a real major gatekeeper uh, for what is considered um, uh, acceptable discourse. Uh, the Times does not allow, for example, Noam Chomsky to appear on its pages, despite his global reputation as a uh, public intellectual. Um, there, there are plenty of people who never get on. Uh, I'm honored to be one of them. <laughs> I've only been on once when I uh, wrote a piece uh, in my role as chairman of a little town's public library complaining about the inadequacy of funding for small uh, rural libraries. So I, I, got, I, I only got in because of it was my safe role enough. there, not as a journalist. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, the, what the Times allows is not to question normally the system, uh, you know, and you you can criticize uh, the Pentagon budget normally for waste and for corruption, but you can't criticize the concept of the U.S. as the world's global policeman, or, um, you know, you can't question the... Um, basically the military-industrial complex as an established uh, institution within the, the country. Um, and yet, here was a piece uh, by Lindsay Kashgarian, which did exactly that. It basically said uh, that you could quite easily whack $300 billion off of the trillion-dollar military budget without affecting... Uh, national security in any meaningful way. And, uh, you know, my eyes popped out when I saw that. It was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, like, this is acceptable talk now? Yeah. Yeah. And and um, so, you know, I called her up to talk with her because I was, uh-huh. I was impressed with it. Um, and I asked her, you know, first of all, she, she used it in an interesting way, she used it to say that that three hundred billion that she uh, laid out and explained what it was in the in the right. uh, limited space she was given uh, could easily fund the additional costs that um, would be in, in, in part of uh, Bernie Sanders' proposal to expand Medicaid uh, and to extend it to. Uh, cover everybody in the United States so that nobody would have any co-pays or deductibles right. or, uh, you know, out-of-pocket expenses, to, and everyone would be covered. And um, so that was that was quite interesting yeah. to say, you know, well, this is what's happening because we're spending all this money on the military. But, you know, then she told me that actually uh, she had done another, that the I. I Yes, uh, had actually done yes, another study studies, yeah. that said that, in truth, um, and this is totally true, that uh, Medicare for all or social, you know, or single payer yeah. uh, health care would cost less, not more. Of um, course, and and she wasn't able to fit that in uh, piece, so she just went with this argument because her main point was that the Pentagon budget is actually 
you know, ripe for cutting. Um, One would and, think. And, and uh, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, mainstream media, you know, keeps talking about how you're going to pay for it. Does this mean higher taxes for the middle class? The, the money is there. And this article serves as a stepping off piece for your more detailed and thorough article in The Nation, which I hope every listener reads, about 15, I'll tell you, about 15 or maybe more years ago, I heard a former Pentagon expert on military budgets speak about where cuts could be made. This is 15, maybe 20 years ago. He said back then, back then that we spend about $63 billion each year on totally obsolete weapon systems. <laughs> Koshkarian's article does not specifically address obsolete weapons. Instead, she kind of dissects where there is other obvious waste that does nothing to enhance our national security. So let, let's go through, it's, it's a stepping off point, let's go th- through a few of those suggested savings. For example, you cite supplemental appropriations for war funding, which cost about $66 billion a year. What? I don't know what supplemental appropriations for war funding is. <laughs> well, this came up in the Bush administration, what they decided because they were doing these, uh, uh, you know, two wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, that were costing trillions of dollars, and they didn't want to show uh, the American public how much it was costing to do these two uh-huh. totally unnecessary wars. Um, and... Um, so they didn't want to put them the funding for those wars in the budget request. So they pulled that. They just stopped listing them as a request at the start of each fiscal year, and instead oh. they would ask later for a supplemental budget request. Uh, and so that's become the the supplemental funding for war has been. Um, ever since a part of the Pentagon budget. It's just not written in as the Pentagon budget. Mm. And um, and to make matters worse, when they froze the budget, uh, the Republicans put a freeze on the budget, and that's been something that's been kind of continuing mm. um, and tying all the budgets together as a way of uh, what the Republicans wanted to do. I guess I guess it was the Democrats who wanted to make sure that the budget didn't get cut for military, so they basically said all budgets would be cut by the same amount, you know, welfare, uh, Social Security, uh, Medicaid, everything would be cut by the same amount, and they threw the Pentagon in there. And then this supplemental budget for wars was exempted. (laughs) So that's allowed to go up even as others get frozen. And so they had this, this, you know, they they instituted these rules that said, for example, uh, if you're going to increase the budget, you have to show where you're going to take other money away. In you know, for some category, if you're yeah. going to increase one, you have to cut somewhere else or else raise taxes. And since nobody wants to do either one of those things, um, the budgets tend to be less. Uh, inflated than they might have been, and uh, then they exempted the Pentagon by exempting the supplemental budget. That's a neat trick. Why didn't I think of that when I was getting an allowance from my parents? You yeah, know, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just some supplemental uh, appropriation that uh, you don't need to know about. Well, then in, in, further in the article, she just suggests an ending to funding for other nations' militaries. She says, she talks about saving $14 billion a year, but I don't know how simple that would be. My sense is that this expenditure, 
funding for other nations' militaries. There's more for strategic, political, geopolitical considerations. Those other countries wouldn't like it. What about this? But but it wouldn't affect our security. In other words, if you give uh, what is it four billion four four uh, trillion four billion dollars a year is it to uh, Israel uh-huh. for arms for over a 10-year period, this $40 billion, um, that's for Israel's security, <laughs> for our security. And they can buy it, actually. We're giving it to them uh, as a sort of a sop to the uh, to the uh, APAC, right. Israel, hard right Israel vote in the United States. Right. And so- you could cut, uh, you know, we, we give money to uh, uh, allies, and uh, in all over the third world, which are usually uh, tyrannies, they are yeah. using the money to Generally. support their you know own repressive regimes. Yeah. None of those things are doing anything for our security, but you know, it's giveaway money that could be cut. Yeah, but doesn't this kind of serve some vision of national interest? Our national interest. That's different than national security. <laughs> True. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It certainly is. Now we have Kid, you, you got you got to separate out these words because they they tend oh, to be yeah. misused, you know, and to trick you. Yeah, for sure. Words are important. Too bad the orange one doesn't understand that. I'm talking about our president, uh, the orange one. But uh, boy, he does look orange these days, doesn't he? Wow, it's weird. <laughs> anyway, w- back to the topic here. We have military bases all over the world. This is a legacy dating back to considerations from the early 20th century. A great many of these bases are aggressively not wanted in the countries that that uh, put up with them. Like in Okinawa, for example, local people often protest these bases being there. How, oh, yeah. How much and they have we, no say over it. They have no say over it. You're right. How much it, do we spend it, on these? Really and what do they calls them and, and goals people in most countries where the bases happen is that they only get put in if the once the country has agreed to grant uh, extraterritoriality and uh, and um, immunity from local law for U.S. service people based Ooh. there. And so in Okinawa, you periodically get a rape of some Okinawan mm-hmm. girl by a U.S. service person who then uh, escapes you know, scot-free, and they they ship them out to the United States, transfer them to another base afterwards, and the Okinawans never get a prosecution for these brutal rapes and even murders. I I wonder how much we spend on these local bases. Uh, Well, the the total amount is appalling, but uh, she came up with a figure. She talked about cutting about um, half of the foreign bases and um, came up with a savings of ninety billion dollars. Hmm. I, th- I think if you if you canceled all of them, there's four hundred and fifty. Um, she was talking about bringing home about two hundred thousand troops, and uh, there's four hundred and forty or four hundred and fifty thousand, ha- close to half a million U.S. troops who are a- abroad at any given time. Some of them are on. Aircraft carrier battle groups, which mm, uh, we'll you know, are that. huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're they're basically giant floating bases of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the you know these huge aircraft uh, air force and uh, navy bases around the world, um, like uh, Diego Garcia Island, um, the Philippines, 
has a Navy and an Air Force base. Um, you know, you mentioned Okinawa, Guam, um, and then in Europe, you have huge bases also. Yeah. Um, they're all over the place. And they're, they're not popular. They're Guantanamo in Cuba, oh. which we um, are still supposedly leasing from Cuba, even though the lease ran out. Um, oh. I didn't and the that. Cubans have never cashed our checks. <laughs> they, there's some small rent that they give them, um, uh, and in protest, Cuba just never cashes them. So that's um, a lot of a lot of people, and you know, a lot of people's uh, livelihoods uh, depend on that. And certainly, the uh, it it does seem that it is uh, that, that the Pentagon budget is largely a uh, public works budget that doesn't really accomplish a whole heck of a lot. And, uh, you know, right right here, actually, uh, it, it, we're coming to uh, everybody in, on the planet from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where there's the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which maintains nuclear submarines. W- w- let's go into submarines. What about the cost versus benefits of, of, of nuclear submarines? They're pretty expensive. Yeah, well, that's a huge program, and um, it it uh, is completely overbuilt. I mean, if you take a, a... We have 18, I believe, Trident submarines. These are in massive underwater ships that carry the uh, these huge missiles, Trident missiles, which each carry, I think, up to 10 uh, multiple re-entry, independently maneuverable warheads uh, that are uh, roughly, I think, 300 kilotons in size so that's uh that's what uh 20 times the size of a of a uh a Hiroshima bomb and um one the one submarine carries 20 tridents so do the math you know that's uh, 200 um 200 bombs that's that uh... are in each of these air, these submarines, and we have 14 of them armed with these Trident missiles. So mm. uh, <laughs> any one of those submarines could create a holocaust in whatever country they launched their mm-hmm. 20 Tridents at. So, you know, theoretically, if we only have two nuclear nations that pose a threat to the United States uh, in some, you know, fevered minds mm. at the Pentagon... Uh, one submarine, such submarine lingering around off the coasts of each of those two countries, and I'm referring to China and Russia, right. uh, would be enough to deter them from an attack. And those subs are basically uh, invulnerable to any Soviet attack. They don't uh, mm-hmm. really have... They've, the, the Pentagon has admitted that the Russians basically don't have the ability to spot where those are at any yeah. given time. Yeah, they're kind of invulnerable, it seems. And uh, Yeah. But we just don't need that many of them, I would But why would we need 14 of them? They, there's 18 of these subs, and, and so 14 of them are, uh, are at sea all the time, patrolling with these, uh, you know, incredible quantities of uh, atomic weapons mm. ready for launch. And then the other fourteen and uh, the other four have been converted to uh-huh. carrying tomahawk missiles, yeah, which are that. launched from below the water uh, and can you know a huge number of them, and they can blitz uh, a country with conventional weapons right. 
as we saw done during the shock and awe campaign against Iraq and, um, you know, the one um, against uh, Syria. Syria more recently. Yeah. You know, they, they can, they're, very, they're very efficient, uh, uh, destructive machines, but they're only usable uh, in that, you know, formation as, you know, conventional weapons against third world nations. So they're, they're not a defensive weapon for the United States. Uh-huh. They're an aggressive weapon as part of the U.S. empire. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody. And our guest today is Dave Lindorf, who's uh, written an article in The Nation titled Military Spending's Out of Control While Slashing It Could Easily Fund Medicare for All. And uh, those, yeah, the, the Tomahawk missiles, uh, 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 our, our president seems to uh, like them very much. He's, he's a big fan of them. Sure, team. because you don't have to worry about Americans getting killed, and that, that's the thing that causes the most unrest uh, um, uh, in the United States right. regarding our wars, not the money. Um, people yeah. don't know about the money or think about it, but they do think about American deaths abroad. So we love our Tomahawks and our you know, cruise missile attacks. That's true. They don't think about the money. I mean, uh, there, there's anything that can save American lives. I mean, Obama had his, uh, you know, various different attacks through uh, drones that uh, I think one could argue rather effectively decreased our national security substantially. And, you know, you talk about Russia and China. They're the big other nuclear powers. But the enemies of the U.S. today, excluding our bizarre president, who I think is not a friend of the United States. Uh, the, the enemies are very different from those of the 20th century when these current policies came into existence. It strikes me that nuclear weapons are not only incredibly threatening to our planet, but they have become basically irrelevant to addressing any of these new threats to America. I mean, what good is a stockpile of nuclear weapons against cyber attacks and stateless terrorists? How many I mean, we have a lot of operational nuclear weapons. My guess is that maintenance, modernization, and upgrading of a large chunk of our defense is a large chunk of our defense budget. These these nuclear weapons, and she suggests. Well, I would you know I would argue the other way. Actually, it's a funny thing. Nuclear weapons have actually uh, had the perverse effect of having given us seventy five years of no world war between two great powers. And and the reason for that is that um, wargaming has shown uh, at both in Russia and in uh, Washington that um, that as soon as you start a conventional war between two great powers with nuclear weapons uh, within a day or a couple of days it goes nuclear and when it goes nuclear it very quickly escalates into an all-out nuclear war so. Um, the fact that everybody knows that China knows it, right. Russia knows it, North Korea knows it, everybody knows it. Uh, you're not going to get a nuclear weapon uh, attack uh, launched because it, it'll go nuclear, and right. you're not going to have a conventional war against a nuclear power because it won't stay conventional. As soon as one starts uh, starts to get an advantage, the weapons go nuclear. So, um, so. Perversely, what it means is that the incredible amount that's spent on um, 
building arms that are extremely expensive and for fighting conventional wars, for instance, against the Soviet Union or against the Russians mm-hmm. or against the Chinese uh, by the Pentagon, are totally wasted. I mean, aircraft carriers are a good example. We have, uh, I think, 11 uh, carrier groups at sea, nine at sea and two in dry dock usually at any given time. And each one of those costs about uh, $30 billion and uh, costs billions of dollars a year to operate. And they're completely useless in a war against uh, a nuclear power because they'll be they'll be blown out of the water um straight off at the, at the at the beginning they're they're sitting ducks uh everybody knows where they are um because of satellites and there'll be a there'll be a nuke dropped on them right. at the start of any conflict so they're they're useless they're only good for uh power projection and bullying by the United States of third world countries hmm. And yet, we could cut. This is a yeah. point I made in my articles that we could actually, uh, if you think about it, we could basically uh, cut, uh, savagely cut our uh, army personnel. We have a 2.4 million person army and no war being fought effectively. I mean, you can't really call Afghanistan a war. Um, so um, it's, a, it's basically a world with, that's not at war. And we have 2.4 million people in uniform. That's, you know, a million um, who are regular troops in the various branches, another uh, 800,000 reserves, then National Guard, and uh, and another, uh, on top of that, 2.4 million, we have 800,000 civilian employees in the Pentagon. It's an incredible expense. And I would argue... We could probably cut it by ninety percent and have a perfectly safe country. We'd keep the national guard because they're useful for national emergencies, you know, disasters and things, and uh, helping out the police if there's a city riot or something that the police can't handle. And then, uh, you know, get rid of the standing army, uh, which we don't need. Nobody's going to invade the United States because we have, you know, our nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, keep a trident, maybe two trident subs, if you want. Only you don't need 20 Tridents. You could use one or two would do the trick and uh, negotiate a nuclear, uh, you know, reduction for everybody. We don't need 1,550 active nuclear weapons and delivery systems. And and we could reduce our budget uh, for the military by probably that, 90%. And all those jobs, you know, I I don't think... Well, jobs is a lousy reason to argue for right. war and military spending, though, because <laughs> one one of the things that the that same uh, center, the Wilson Center that you cited at Brown, did a study of uh, federal spending on the military and federal spending on other uh, activities uh, to see what makes the most jobs. Uh-huh, and and the military is the worst way uh, to have job creation. I, I can't help but think so. And to have all these, you know, basically obsolete weapons. I mean, nuclear, you're right. Certainly they have provided a, a significant and very effective deterrent against uh, Russia and China attacking us. But so many of these massive weapon systems cost tons of money. 
they and and they basically are meant to just sit there on the shelf gathering dust and <coughs> somehow i have the impression that you know we have other needs like climate change like infrastructure transportation uh building uh you know sustainable energy that could create a heck of a lot more jobs i wonder why there's not the uh political will is it is it i mean I, <laughs> The 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 uh, worry that I imagine a lot of elected officials have about looking soft on defense. Uh, I I don't know how much of a factor that still is. It certainly has been a factor for a long time, and so we continue to waste all this money and not, you know, create real good jobs like Franklin Roosevelt did. You know, in in rebuilding the nation's infrastructure. I don't think it's really been done since then. Well, Eisenhower named it. I mean, he saw yes, the, he the creation of the military-industrial complex. We now have that, and the, 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 uh, the combination of the uh, huge number of military people who actually are based in places and want their jobs, you know, career military people, there's a million of them, uh, they are all over the country. They're called heroes. Yes. Uh, you know, there's this whole propaganda about them, you know, defending our freedom, which they aren't doing. No. And uh, and uh, so people want them around. They think they're, they're the most admired. You know, they're always listed as the most admired people, you know, people in uniform. Um, and uh, and then on top of that, you've got uh, half of half of the basic Pentagon budget of seven hundred and something billion dollars goes directly into the pockets of the arms industry. Three hundred and sixty billion dollars, I believe it is, a year, um, and that is the most combined. You know, those two things: the the military themselves and the arms industry is the single hugest uh interest group with uh you know in terms of influence within the US government so they've basically got a self-perpetuating arrangement now where they just uh clobber anybody who suggests that they ought to be cut down to size yeah i've noticed that even the most liberal members of congress shy away from that there's there's a lot of power bernie sanders Bernie Sanders has uh, steadfastly supported the uh, crazy F-35 project because he wants okay. to have the uh, F-35, 18 F-35s uh, based with the Vermont National Guard at mm. their, inter- their uh, little Burlington International Airport, one runway airport. And uh, he has stuck by that. He's been dishonest about it, saying that they are not a uh, nuclear delivery system, which they are. And uh, he has uh, he's, he's been uh, very uh, dishonest about the threats posed by the basing of those planes there, both uh, because they make Burlington a target and because of the uh, incredible noise these planes make when they take off and land over a congested uh, working-class neighborhood. Mm, which is where they put them. And I, I do find it interesting that, I mean, I, I was uh, a very active anti-war during the Vietnam War, and it seems like one obvious lesson, the most obvious lesson is don't do that. Don't force a, a government on people that don't want it. And, yep. yet, and yet what we have done instead is not only not learn that lesson, but somehow the impression was given that 
that that the the guys on the ground were not respected, were treated badly, which is overblown. I mean, there was very little of that because most people knew it wasn't their fault. Uh, they were carrying out the orders of uh, Johnson and Nixon. But now, you know, the overreaction is everything military, anybody in a uniform, as you say, is a hero. And and that's, you know, it, it makes it very difficult to talk about making real change and, and, and cutting huge amounts of waste in the military budget. And what, what would bring real national security? I mean, that whole term, you know, it's not just military. But uh, anyway, for those people who've just tuned in, uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Dave Lindorf. Uh, we're talking about military spending out of control and cutting it could keep our national security, cutting it a lot, and uh, certainly easily pay for Medicare for all. And you know, in, here in Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, a big deal. It was all big fluff stuff in the newspaper and everything that this new Navy destroyer came in. I can't remember the name of it, but it looked like a huge floating Batmobile. I mean, it's just like a stealth. Yeah, it's a stealth, a stealth destroyer. <laughs> a stealth destroyer. Thank you. I, I didn't know what the heck it was, but some people like thought it was way cool. <laughs> First of all, it's a failed. It's a failed design, and it and it should be just canceled, terminated. Uh, it's a, It's like a. It's got the same problems that the F thirty five has. That first of all, it's not stealthy. You can spot it in a minute. Yeah. Especially if you're an advanced country, which is what it's designed to be uh, used against. Um, so, I mean, they've already said that the F-35 can be spotted by uh, um, this uh, German radar that they put out in a, some kind of a farm and, and spotted the F-35s that were being flown from France to Germany without any problem at all. Yeah. Um, the Russians certainly have advanced radars that they can spot these planes. So it, if it's designed to be stealthy to use against advanced country radars, it's a total failure. And the same with these destroyers. So where will they be used? They're, gonna, they're using the F-35, since it's such a, a complete turkey of a plane, hmm. the Air Force <clears throat> has been using them to fly missions in Afghanistan. Well, really, do you need a, uh, you know, a $100 million plane with stealth technology to deliver bombs against the Taliban? Because they don't have any radars to spot it. <laughs> so... You know, um, it's just they're showing that it can fly somewhere and it can drop a bomb, but um, you didn't need that plane to do it. And um, so all of these things are just vast expenditures to, uh, you know, enrich uh, Lytton Industries and, uh, you know, Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all of those companies uh, for no purpose. No purpose, and I just I'm I'm often wrong, but I do have this sense that if people, you know, part of the election of Trump was anger at a government that's not serving uh, us, we the people, the average people. He twisted it around, of course, and it's you know far worse than it was before he took office. But I I can't help but believe that if people had this knowledge that that it's not really effectively protecting us. They were spending huge amounts 
wastefully if there were people running for office who would have the chutzpah, the guts, to stand up and say this stuff. I don't know. I have a feeling uh, people might rally around it. But as you're right, even Bernie Sanders uh, really won't talk about that. But, you know, we, we get focused on, well, where are you going to pay for it as we started the show? How are you going to pay for it? you got to cut uh, some things or raise middle class taxes. You don't really need to do that. Well, uh, you know, one on a, on a slight note of optimism, I opened oh, my, um, <laughs> in my uh, Philadelphia Inquirer two days ago, and there was a column by a staff col- uh, uh, columnist for the Inquirer on the, uh, on the editorial page, um, Will Bunch, who's, you know, he's always been sort of a standard mushy liberal, liberal uh, writer, you know, he's got a nice heart and he writes about good stuff. Well, this time he talked about the Defense Department and he said, he was saying how ridiculously expensive it is and how it needs to be cut. And one of his points was, he said, it said two things really interesting and also uh, way out of line of what I've read in a mainstream paper. He, he said, um, we've been fighting these wars, uh, endless wars, for the last 18 years since 9-11, uh, achieving nothing and with no end in sight. Uh, and he says it's based on the uh, illusion that the United States uh, has the task of and is able to run the world. Uh, and he said we need to give up that illusion and realize that we're just another country in the world and we need to co- cooperate and work diplomatically. That was one thing. And then at the end he said we're asking the wrong questions. Instead of asking how we're going to pay for Medicaid, how we're going to pay for uh, for student loan forgiveness, you know, how we're going to pay for fixing our crumbling infrastructure, we should be asking how are we going to keep paying for endless wars? And I thought, bingo, you know, you hit it right on the head. That's a so this was a, akin to the uh, the shock I had reading the Times op-ed by Lindsay. It, it, something is happening in the zeitgeist here that people are actually feeling like they can ask these questions. So that's a, that's a start. Oh, it is. That, that's, uh, it's nice to have a little bit of optimism. I always try to, to go for that. And, you know, we're talking about these giant weapon systems and, and you know, just incredibly expensive uh, big toys that seem to be a lot of fun. I mean, you wouldn't believe the guys that uh, were all excited about that stealth uh, ship coming in here. It just looks so cool. It's such a big toy. But the reality is, all right, there are, we have, there was the 9-11 attack that was done on a very limited budget by the terrorists. Uh, and I just, you know, building all these these weapon systems against China and Russia, when they, you know, they're already, obviously, and we need to keep this, not going to attack the U.S. It's the stateless terrorists, cyber attacks, things like that, that can, you know, sneak in and do terrorist attacks at on the cheap. And, you know, how, how is... We're not... The military has nothing to do with those. They don't do a thing to stop those. That's that's the that's the real irony of it. None of these things are, are you don't use it, those destroyers and those F thirty five and the real enemies. Trident submarines and stuff against terrorists. And oh. yet they're the real threat to our national security, and they don't do anything about it. And and I was also thinking about the recent uh, uh, Yemeni uh, reprisal against uh, uh, the Saudi government by attacking their oil fields. 
I wonder how much money we have given the Saudis, and there they were, basically <laughs> sitting ducks. And they they they're doing this with sort of off the shelf, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> do it yourself uh, drones that you you know you can. These things are getting fairly sophisticated now that you can buy yeah. at Walmart. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and imagine when all these drones that uh, UPS and sure. FedEx are going to start flying around delivering packages get in the hands of terrorists. <laughs> oh, my God, I know. Here comes your delivery. Right? Boom. Boom. <laughs> so, no, it's just insane. So, um, yeah, uh, it, it's. I think that's all madness. We should be slashing our military down to, uh, you know, no more standing army like the Founding Fathers warned. Yes. And um, and start spending our money on other stuff. And you know, the other thing um, you talked about jobs. If right. if we had a national health system, and companies no longer had to pay for uh, the health care for their workers, and workers no longer had to pay uh, parts of their salary to pay their premiums for their insurance. Um, we would have such a surge in corporate profits and in competitiveness on the world markets that you know the the one ads would would soar for hiring because it was so much cheaper to hire workers that's why uh you know if you look at general motors and ford and and fiat chrysler why mm-hmm. they have so many plants in canada the wages are the same uh-huh. uh across the border but there's no health care costs for the employees. And so the cost, uh, I've talked with executives in Canada of these subsidiaries, and they say, oh, our, our per unit cost for producing a van or a, you know, a car in Canada is uh, you know, substantially 15 20% lower than in, across the river in Detroit because we don't have the health care costs. Uh, it's, I guess, too complicated. It's so much easier than, you know, just look at these groovy new weapons. I don't know. It's, uh, but <laughs> and, and, and you write about, I mean, something else I don't, I don't really know about, the, the Navy's aircraft, bar, battle, aircraft carrier battle groups. What, what oh, are, yeah. A Navy, an aircraft carrier is such a vulnerable piece of property oh, yeah. to the Navy. You know, they cost billions of dollars, uh, these nuclear carriers. And they're in, they're an entire air force. You know, I mean, just the value of the planes on one aircraft carrier is more than most countries can afford in in their air force. I, I mean, I think the air force assembled on one U.S. aircraft carrier is bigger than the entire British air force. Yeah. So um, you you put send that thing out to sea, and it's a gigantic target. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, you don't have to be very accurate to hit it. Um, and uh, and if you come close to it with a, a small nuke, it's done. Oh yeah. So what they do to protect them is that they you can see these pictures. The Navy shows uh, has, there's lots of photographs. If you Google uh, Navy aircraft carrier group images, you get these pictures of an entire fleet around these things: destroyers, uh, cutters, submarines. Uh, you know, attack submarines, uh, supply ships. It's just phenomenal how how many boats are in a navy carrier group. <laughs> it's it's an it's equivalent to most countries' entire navy. And I wonder how much we're shelling out for that. Oh, oh, it, it, it's in the at least double digit billions, and probably. Uh, 
probably you're getting up to th- three digit billions mm. uh you know three like hundreds of hundred billion dollars for the carrier groups over the life of the ships. It's just amazing <laughs> how huge these things are, and that's why they you know they don't they don't put them in harm's way um mm-hmm. and 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 the, what makes the, the real joke about it is that uh, the they're so vulnerable to uh, hypersonic cruise missiles that uh, they now have in China and Russia that they can't bring them anywhere near a Chinese or Russian coastline. So the planes that they have on them, like the new uh, Navy version of the F-35, are so far away from a coastline that if they had to attack, they wouldn't be able to spend any time over the other country. They'd, they'd go there and have to turn right around and come back or they'd run out of fuel because they got to stay out of range of these uh, shore-to-ship sure, sure missiles. And, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, if you ask an ISIS or Al-Qaeda what they think of those... <laughs> It's not going to matter at all. It's completely matter at all. It has nothing to do with them. No, and they're they're the ones uh, still out there attacking us. We talk about the Navy, the Air Force, as such. I believe only came into existence after the Second World War. That's right. It was the Army Air Corps, right, in World War Two. And there's long been discussion about possibly eliminating the Air Force altogether. Mm-hmm. I called for that in my article. I just said, you know, it has no purpose because. Uh, with the Trident submarines, uh, it eliminates any reason why you would... The only, the only thing that the Air Force really can do, and it's why the U.S. still has this policy, is a, a first strike. It could do a first strike against an enemy country like Russia or China, which the U.S. has never forsworn. We, we've, alone among nuclear powers, we haven't said uh, we wouldn't do a first strike. So we have missiles like the Minuteman, and, and even the Trident is actually a first strike weapon, by the way, it, mm. uh, because they, they designed it to have an accuracy of within 100 yards of uh, the target. And the only purpose of having that kind of accuracy is to destroy missiles in their silos, um, which is a first strike. And uh, if, you want a, if you just want a retaliation, if you just want to tell an enemy country, we're going to destroy you if you attack us, you don't need to spend a lot of research money developing something with pinpoint accuracy. You just need something that can carry one big sucker bomb, which is what the Russians did, uh, because they didn't have the technology to do the kind of accuracy our missiles have. They put a big nuke, nuke on their missiles, and they say, you know, you're going to lose New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, St. Louis, you know, uh, Boston, and Washington if you attack us. And uh, and that's enough. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but but we have these pinpoint things because we're threatening a first strike. And, and the Air Force, I mean, if you're talking about uh, all the things that we fly, you know, these aircraft carriers, the submarines, the, uh, the bases that are located close to Europe, like when they put F 35s that each can carry two nuclear bombs um, within 15 minutes of Russia in you know borders like Poland or or uh, Czechoslovakia or Romania or things like that. Um, they're threatening a first strike. They're saying we're going to sneak across the border and pop off these two nukes, uh, and we're going to have 450 of these planes based in Europe. That's a threat of a first strike. And it's like 
I guess force projection is a term you use as well. And, you know, the third world, we want to dominate. We want to be the global, you know, big boy on the block. And it's about our imperial foreign policy. That's exactly right. And, you know, that's not defensive. That's, uh, you know, wanting to control those blank hole countries that uh, the president uh, talked about. And Yes, that's right. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable saying on the radio, although he made it okay. But, uh, you know, it, it just, I wonder if people really know about that or care about that and, and, and realize that, you know, I mean, people say, oh, no, we're not an empire. We're not imperial. Well, heck, yes, we are. For those who may have just the kind of article, you know, I've written op-ed pieces like that and sent them off to papers like the Times, and they never run them because right. that's, that's something you're not allowed to say, that that the U.S. is is an empire and that its military is about preserving that empire. When you say American troops are defending our freedom, yeah, they yeah, really yeah. aren't. They're attacking other people's freedom and they're um they're imposing a US uh rule over all these other countries that they're involved in. That's a very good point. That is a very good point. If you just... But it's not one that you can discuss in, no, the in polite media. company. No, in polite company, no. no polite company, right. <laughs> doesn't do that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Dave Lindorf, who's written an article for The Nation, which I hope everybody reads, uh, about uh, our military budget and, you know, how are we going to pay for it? Not difficult. Not how are we going to pay for Medicare for all? Not difficult at all. It's just a question uh, of budget. And uh, as you write, it's regrettable and a diversion, really, for Sanders and Warren to be caught in that unnecessary frame of uh, whether or not setting up a Canadian-style single-payer government-funded health care system would require increasing middle-class taxes. At least Bernie does talk about cutting Pentagon spending, except in Vermont, of course. And Democratic candidates have traditionally been terrified of looking soft at defense. You say that such thinking reflects an outdated and no longer accurate perception of public attitudes. What, what leads you to that conclusion? Is there recent polling to reflect... Uh, that change in opinion on military spending? I mean, yeah, there is a recent poll by uh, Public Citizen that found that um, I think the, the number was 51% of all Americans think that the uh, that too much is being spent on the on the Pentagon. They had a, a and I, I loved this because you know polls can be tricky because oh, yeah. you can ask uh, uh, questions in such a way that you get the answer you want. Uh, and a lot of them are are skewed that way, so you don't get. You, then they'll tell you, well, the, the U.S. Uh, public supports uh, a strong military, but the the way they phrased this one was very honest. They said, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the U.S. is expected to spend 738 billion dollars on its military in 2020. Some say that maintaining a dominant global military footprint is necessary to keep us safe and is worth the cost. Others say that money could be better spent on domestic needs like health care, education, protecting the environment. Based on what you've just read, would you support or oppose reallocating money from the Pentagon budget to other priorities? And by a three-to-one margin, that's 66% to 18%, Democratic voters said they favored that shift in funding. Among independents, the margin is 46 to 39%. So a plurality wanted, a major plurality wanted a shift mm -hmm. uh, in spending away from the Pentagon to those uh, issues they named. 
even among Republicans, 39%, so roughly uh, 4 in 10, favored shifting funding from the Pentagon to human needs, with 52% opposed. That's Republicans. Mm-hmm. So that's an astonishing uh, result, and and it's a and it's a very clear question. It's not one that you can say, oh, they you know they they tricked them into saying that. Right. It was, That's they, very they, clear. They wrote it very succinctly and clearly. So if that's true, and I have no reason to doubt that it's true, um, there's a broad support across the United States for cutting drastically the Pentagon and for not having a goal of. Uh, you know, dominating the world and instead doing the things that we really need. You know, I've done a lot of traveling. I've lived in China. I've lived in Hong Kong. I've lived in Taiwan. Uh, I've traveled to Laos and Vietnam and uh, Thailand. And, you know, I've been around and and spent a considerable amount of time abroad. And I have to tell you that I, when I go anywhere from the United States, I feel like I am from a third world country. When I see the infrastructures in these countries, even in China, God, you you go, you land outside Shanghai at their international airport, and you can ride for like the equivalent of fifteen dollars a maglev train at two hundred and fifty miles per hour on a uh, on a uh, mm-hmm. monorail mm-hmm. Uh, up above the ground by about fifty feet uh, with with sweeping curves and stuff, and get to Shanghai in minutes, and and you can have a cup of coffee on your lap that doesn't even ripple. Wow. For the whole ride, and I said, "Whoa, this is China!" <laughs> right? And yet, you know, for so long, since you know, at least uh, uh, the the so-called Spanish-American War of eighteen ninety-eight, uh, we, we've had this gunboat diplomacy, you know, for the third world to achieve American global power, and. I'm not sure it has worked. I don't know what their global dominance has gotten us or what the public uh, 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 sentiment is regarding, uh, you know, our need to uh, be the king of the world in, in, in controlling these third world countries. Uh, it, you well, know, it's cost us a lot. I mean, yeah. when you look at the shabbiness of our cities, the, the yes. amount of poverty we have in this country. I live in Philadelphia where the schools are so bad. My daughter did her student teaching there, uh, and she said in her classrooms, uh, some of the kids were sitting on bookshelves in the back of the room because they didn't have enough desks, and they were they had history books that and that had been published in 1970, and science books that had been published in 1980, you know, that are totally out of date, and um, that's we're creating a whole generation of students who just don't know anything and can't. Uh, compete in a global economy. Hmm. Um, our roads are an embarrassment. I had a. I, I, I went to Italy with my wife on a business trip that she had performing, and we were in a small town. Uh, we got uh, rerouted on our flight because of a uh, a uh, strike on a, a British plane. So we ended up in the wrong city and trying to find a, a hotel that we got at the last minute. And we took a taxi. And um, th- so we got to talking with the taxi driver and he was saying, oh, I really want to go to America. He said, I'm going to get re- go to America and rent a uh, motor scooter and tour the country. And I said, please don't do that. You'll end up in a hospital because you can't you can't drive around the United States in a small wheeled two wheel 
you know, motorcycle because the potholes are so bad that you're going to end up, you know, flat on your face <laughs> at 45 miles an hour. And he said, really? I said, yeah, you need to rent a big hog with big round wheels if you want to survive, you know, on a motorcycle trip in the United States. And he said, how can that be? You know, and I'm, we're riding yeah. along on these, you know, perfectly glass-smooth roads in this little Italian town. Everything, all the roads were good, and this is Italy, not, not West Germany or, right. or France. Huh. <laughs> Italy, it's where embarrassing. it's not known for its, <laughs> uh, you know, government deficiency, shall we say. Well, I just wanted to ask one, one last thing. You say... Uh, you know, the, 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 we started out talking about, you know, surprise that this budget stuff is in a mainstream media. You say we need a sea change in journalism to make investigating the decades-long hijacking of our taxes for the war a top priority. Why is it that the idea is just not discussed by the mainstream media and politicians of both parties? What keeps that from happening? And what do you see any kind of beginning of a sea change in, in journalism? Well, okay, the, I... I did a cover story for the nation in December about the uh, incredible fraud that's been going on in the Pentagon budgeting for the last at least 20 years, where they're making up the numbers and Congress isn't even asking about it. And they, the uh, yeah, I mean, people should read it. There's there's twenty twenty nine thirty dollar a thirty bill a trillion dollars in uh, fraudulent accounting in the Pentagon, oh. and it's not. Uh, it's not secret money. It's like a bogus accounting so that uh, nobody knows what's going on, what's being spent, and not what it's being spent on in the Pentagon. Nobody knows, even in the Pentagon, how to <laughs> spend it. So I thought, you know, wow, that are, that's going to really get a lot of attention. And it did in the alternative media. I, after that came out, I couldn't do any work for about three weeks because I was deluged with requests for interviews like this from... Uh, everything from the takeaway at NPR to, uh, you know, independent Pacifica stations and everything. That's but I didn't get a single inquiry from a mainstream mm. producer or editor of any journal anywhere, and it did not get reported anywhere outside the alternative media. That's a scandal. Well, once and again... This was, a, this was a really well-documented article, you know, fact-check the nation. It does an incredible fact-checking job. They do. They publish only, like, really good journalism. Yes. And, a, and the article won me a uh, 2019 ISI Award from the Park Center for Outstanding Independent Media. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of that. I don't want to toot my horn, but I just want to say that, that that's a very respected award, and the article is really good, and nobody picked up on it in the, in the mainstream right. media. Well, once again, the public is ahead of the politicians. we got to keep the pressure on. We do have that power. Well, if people want to read more of your stuff, they can read The Nation, Any, anything on the, uh, that Internet thing that you should suggest people could go to. Yeah, the nation, if they go to thenation.com and Google Lindorf, they'll quickly find that Pentagon piece. And it's, it's, yeah. it's a fascinating read. I look forward uh, to reading I, it. I would urge everyone to read that and spread it around. Uh, and you can also come to my website, which is uh, a collection of five journalists, uh, and it's called thiscan'tbehappening.net. Ah, good That's title. That's where this uh, article we've been talking about, uh, right. about the Pentagon spending, uh, was published. This can't be happening.net. Well, it is. Thank you so much, Dave Lindorf, for being with us. Well, thank you, Bert, for having me on. Sure.
Keep it up. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Military madness was killing